If you have a Bible this morning, I'd like you to turn to the book of 2 Peter, back in the back. I want to talk this morning from verses 1 through 13 of 2 Peter chapter 1. My title is three words, the elect, the way, and the reward. That seems to be what is implied here. You could give other titles to it, but I just want to major on these three things this morning. The elect, the way, and the reward. We all want to be rewarded, don't we? We all would like to end this life with a reward waiting for us. But we all also understand that if you want a reward waiting for you, then you have to live in a certain way for that to be. Amen. And you cannot live the way you need to live unless, first of all, you've been born again or saved or you've been manifested as one of God's people because it works like that. Now, verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace, verse 2, and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us into glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance and to temperance patience and to patience godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness charity or love. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, or let's just say therefore, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet or necessary, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. I'd like to begin this morning with verse 11 and 12, because sometimes we preachers do seem to repeat ourselves. We do seem to say the same thing again ever so often. But there are things in the Bible that are worth repeating quite often. There are certain things in the Bible you're never going to hear too much of. 
You're never going to overload on certain subjects. That is, you're never going to get so much out of it that you dread hearing it. There are just some things that are like good music, good songs that you heard, good memories you like to think about. They're just like the song says, sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Well, if somebody has ever found God's words to be words of life and they have ministered to you and they've left you with good feelings or good ideas or good thoughts, you want to hear it again. Just like if you went to a good restaurant and ate a, a meal that you like. When you left there, you thought, boy, that was really good. There's a good chance you'll go back in there again and eat. The word of God's like that. We feed on the word. It's like bread. It's what nourishes us spiritually. And whatever nourishes you and brings a measure of satisfaction to your heart and life and makes you feel better about things and your outlook is better and your hope is geared up and you're ready to pursue the kingdom, that's a good thing. That's good nourishment. And every time you hear that, it kind of has that effect upon you. I want to start verse 12. He said, but I will not be negligent to declare unto you these things that you've already heard. Now, I know he said you have heard this, and I know you're established in it. But as long, in verse 13, he says, as long as I'm in this body, and as long as this is what God has given me to do, I think that's what he's saying. I want to keep stirring you up. I don't want you to get complacent and start taking things for granted. I don't want you to go from living water to a, just a swamp or a dead creek bed somewhere. I want you to live as though you are planted by rivers of living water. That if the Holy Spirit is in you, he's like a living stream. Always something inspiring you. Spirit of God inside of you leading you to where there's refreshment and where there is goodness and where there is something that is enthusiastic. So, he says, I want to stir you up. Now, verse 8. In light of all this, in verse 8 he said, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you're neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the only way something can abound that makes you fruitful is that it be a living word living inside of you. God's word alone can bear the kind of fruit that is acceptable to God. Do you understand that? We can all imagine good things to do as church folks. We can go out and do this and build one of those and, and come up with good ideas. But the only thing that really bears fruit is what is produced by the Word. For the Word is like seed. And when you plant it, it grows. And when it grows, it brings forth that which is of God. And that alone is acceptable to God. That wouldn't be a very nice comment to a lot of busy, busy religionists today, but it's still true. Not everything going on today is something inspired of God. Man has his way of doing things the same as God has his way of doing things. But you notice the word in verse 8, the word knowledge. I hope we major on that, and I hope you major on that in your life. Knowledge is knowing. Knowledge is information. 
We couldn't do much in this life if we didn't know what we were doing. We couldn't go anywhere if we didn't know how to get there. We couldn't serve God the way God wants us to if we don't know what God wants. There's just so much of what amounts to anything in the Christian life that depends on you knowing something. For example, verse 1. Notice the first verse. To them that have obtained like precious faith with us, how? Through the knowledge of God. We need to know something about God, don't we? There is something that transpires. When a man's pursuit of God involves him knowing God. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. There is something that God does when a man wants to learn. Now, when he's complacent, sitting there, doesn't really care much about what's going on, just having a church meeting, nothing happens. They go home as dead as they came. But when you want to know what something means, when you want to get to the bottom of it, when your quest to understand what God meant about what he said or what the Bible says leads you to investigate and to seek after and to search, something begins to come forth in your life. That's what he said. He said, who obtained like precious faith through the knowledge. Does faith come by hearing? You can't have faith unless you know something, can you? So that's what happens there. I mean, faith comes because God shows you something. You believe something. In verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace. Who has that today? We sing songs about both of them. Well, where is it? Who has it? It can be had, and you can have it. But there's a way it comes, and that's the way you have to get it. It comes through knowing. You have to know. You have to know something. You can't just be a member of a church, as I did all of my growing up years through college. You can't just go there in a meeting and sit there and wait for the thing to end so you can go home. Nothing was known. There was nothing, absolutely nothing spiritual about that. It wasn't until I got saved that I wanted to know what it was about. That's when I became dangerous. That's when I got persecuted because I came out of that lethargic deadness and began to ask a lot of questions and pursue the Lord, begin to study, ask a lot of questions, bothers people but God loves it and the eyes get open and you see things that are worth pursuing. But it's through the knowledge in verse three, he said, according as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through what? That's four times in these few verses that word knowledge has come up and the key role that knowledge plays in our lives as Christians. I think the reason today some people are, are still strong in the Lord is because they haven't forgotten what they learned. That even though things fell apart here, there, and everywhere else, 
it didn't fall apart in your life because what you knew became a foundation that you were willing to stand on. It wasn't vague. It wasn't just his word or her word, but you heard a word from somebody and it caused you to seek. And when you begin to seek, this divine nature, the presence of God in your life began to take over. And when it did, you begin to learn things about him, who he is. Is it true that God is at work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure? Isn't that still in there? That Christ in you is still the hope of glory? There's something inside of a Christian that is inspiring, provoking, and promoting. Always stirring you up. Isn't that what the purpose of preaching and teaching is? To stir up people? Let me read it then if you forgot it already. He said, I think it necessary as long as I'm in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. Stir you up. There are just things that God wants to keep fresh. And hopefully you are with friends who like to stay fresh or you're going somewhere you can hear the word and there is that work of God in your life that doesn't let the word just go in one ear and out the other. There is something going on where a man realizes that he has been brought out of darkness and light is living in him and he wants to partake of it. Now notice, in light of that, he said, there's our great and precious promises in verse four. God, through the knowledge of his word, through the enlightenment of his spirit, has revealed and is revealing to us in his word promises. We never believed them before. We never paid much attention to them before, but now we do. Because these are promises that God has made, 8,000 of them in the Bible. The church today has gotten a hold of one. Psalm 103, who forgiveth all our iniquities. That's about the only benefit you can be sure of in this life is that God forgives. And all the others, they leave them out. But you shouldn't leave them out because the same verse that says he forgives all your iniquities, the same verse says he heals all your diseases. And yet people don't really know that. They read that. They've heard that. They may talk about it. They don't know that. There's something lacking. Somebody needs to be stirred. You hear me? Somebody needs to be stirred up to look at that again and again and again and keep looking at it. I could ask you, do you all believe that? Or don't believe it because I said it. I'm nobody's conscience. You believe it because the Bible says it. And you keep saying that because just because you read it doesn't mean you believe it, but you keep working on that mind. You keep stirring up people. You keep doing that. And these promises that we find in the Bible, whichever one you find, it gets your attention. Healing is a good one. Or being crowned with loving kindness is a good one. Or how about having your youth renewed as the eagle? Is that a good one? Seems like it'd be pretty good. Blessed when you go out and blessed when you come in. Is that a good one? Everything you put your hand to will prosper. Is that a good one? Those are promises. 
They don't mean much to a lot of people, but they should to us. And I think the reason they don't have a lot of meaning to some people is because they haven't bothered themselves with growing. They just haven't made a big deal out of growing. Traditionally, in my family, the family I grew up in, we were just members of churches. My daddy was Catholic. My mother was a protester. We were just religious. Nobody was growing. The language you went to church with is the language you brought home with. The nasty things before church were the same nasty things after church. Nothing changed. We weren't growing. It didn't really matter what was preached. We didn't go to hear a sermon. We went to put our time in to be seen or to get a medal for Sunday school attendance. I had some of them. And we just weren't growing. Peter says, I want to stir you up to let you know that it's through these wonderful promises that God has given to you that you can be delivered from the corruption that is in the world. Because you don't have to lust after all those things in the world. Your heavenly father knows you need these things. But he said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Just learn to be content in the state that you're in. Quit trying to get money all the time and quit trying to get fame. Just serve the Lord and seek his kingdom and in due season, all these things will come. If you can be patient, if you can endure, God is good. Now, verse 10. Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you'll never, as I would read it, fall away. You'll never start and not finish. You'll stay with it the rest of your life. You won't give up and quit. Discouragement will not make you quit. Somebody did you wrong, cheated on you. Somebody died. Somebody stole from you. That won't make you quit. But here's what he said, verse 10. Wherefore, the rather brethren, or just read therefore again. Therefore, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Nobody in this room and nobody who reads this will make any such thing as calling an election sure if you don't know what it means to be elect. How can you make something sure if you don't know what it is? Maybe we assume that election simply means church membership. If that's true, then most everybody in the world is elect. And I know that's not true. And you know it's not true. So if you're going to make your calling an election certain, if you are going to do that, you better know what being elect is because it's not just sitting in a church meeting. It's a condition, something that God does to certain people. It's something that God does to a person, a man or a woman, that causes them to forever be different and change. Let me take the word elect. Again, I don't know how many people know what elect is or what it means. It's a very controversial subject in some circles. Controversial or not. Salvation's controversial to some people. The Holy Spirit's controversial. The Word of God is controversial. 
the word elect is a word that has to do with a choice that God makes of who will be his people before the foundation of the world. Before there was a world, there was a choice. Before there was ever a me or a you, there was a God who knew me or you, and he made a choice that you or me or whoever would be his children. And again, that is such a controversial thing. I think in the Reformation, they called it Calvinism, or they could have gone back before that and called it Augustinianism because he believed that. But the elect is simply those that are chosen by God to inhabit his kingdom, those who will obtain salvation, which they have been predestined before the foundation of the world. Let me tell you why that's controversial. Because it appears that God makes a choice before a person makes a choice. Before they've done right or wrong, God has chosen. Can that be? Turn to Ephesians 1. Keep your finger there, but go to Ephesians 1. And verse 4. I want you to follow me. Please don't take my word for any of this this morning. I want you to look at the scripture yourself and not be vague about what elect means or the election or elect saints as they're called. Verse four of Ephesians one, according as he has chosen us in him when? Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Verse five having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to what? And I'll see that because I'm going to come back to that. According to the good pleasure of what? So listen, let me see. According to the good pleasure of his will and nothing outside of himself, dependent on nothing that man does or will do, but simply according to God's will, he has predetermined that such and such and so and so will be saved. All men are lost. All men are lost. How can anybody be saved then? Who can relate to God in their sins? No man can make himself right with God. There is no membership, no work, no traveling, missionary, preaching. There's nothing you can do to make yourself right. We're all wrong. If God just left us alone and did nothing, we would all perish. Now, what if, what if, what if God wanted to save some of us? What if God wanted to save some of us? Can he? What if he did not choose to save everybody? Who said he had to save anybody? No man can dictate to God what he's doing. No man can say to God, what are you doing? That's in Romans 9. No man can tell God why or what or it's not fair. Who amongst lost people can say to God, that's not fair? Now here we are lost. I use my language. God comes to somebody and says, I'm going to save you. And he does what only God can do 
to cause that to happen. Now, we call what God does grace. Now, you don't deserve it. You were lost, right? So he says, I'm going to save you. So godly sorrow comes. He does what he has to do. You hear the word. You're convicted by it. Oh. And so you ask him to save you. He gives you faith. He gives you everything you need to be saved. For by grace, through faith, are you saved. And that, not of yourself. See, there are people who think that, well, God from eternity foresaw, foreknew who down through history would accept the Lord and seeing afar off that they would one day make that decision, he chose them and called them his elect. That's another view of this. But if that was true, if such a thing could be true, then God's election is based on man's works. He foresaw what a man would do. And so a man did something, therefore God saved us. It doesn't work like that. Man can do nothing to save himself. It is entirely of and up to God that anybody is brought out of darkness. You, me, our children, anybody. And if God wanted to save row one and two and exercise his grace and sovereignty on rows one and two to save them, He's done no wrong to anybody else because we're all lost. We're all lost. But he chose, I don't know why either, but he chooses to save people. And those that weren't still in their sins, and that's why they're judged. They're judged because of their sins. You would have too if he hadn't forgiven you. If he hadn't made a provision for you to receive forgiveness, you would have been judged. Well, why me? I don't know. You can read in like in Romans chapter nine, the potter and the clay. And the potter makes a large lump of clay from which he's gonna make a vase, a bowl, whatever he wants to make. Or with maybe what's left over, he might make a spittoon. The vases and all this will be painted and be heated and made nice and strong and put in nice decorative places in the home. And that other thing is what he feeds cat out of. Is what if the clay said, that ain't right? What if the clay had a voice and said, whoa, that ain't right. It's not fair for you to make a vase out of that and make me something that people spit in or dogs eat out of. Let me ask you something. What right does a clay have? He no rights. If he wanted to make a vase out of something, and he can do that. It's his, it's his clay. He's under no obligation to save anybody. People need to see that. People think that because they go to church, they're all right. If you're really what God has saved, and there's a way you'll live that shows it. Like he said in verse 10, you'll make your calling and election sure. You're compelled to live in a certain way. You're not free to just sit and be in a membership of a church the rest of your life and boast of how many years. You don't do that no more. You've changed because God one day, in my life it was June the 30th, 1968, one day of all places in a Christian church, the one I was in, yours was great, mine was really, really liberal. Of all places to save somebody, 
of all places to pour out that wonderful grace that captures a human heart. I was a car chaser. We call them dogs. Vile, ugly, nasty, corrupt. Being a basketball coach and being in sports and all my life and hanging around the guys I grew up and going through college and all that. I knew what nasty was. I knew how to do it and knew how to go to church and play that game. And one day, the likes of me, a wretch like me, received a measure of grace that has forever changed my life. Now, the effect of grace on a lost man that draws him to God makes that one who is drawn one of God's elect. Not because God saw one day you would make a decision, but before any decision was capable of being made, God chose you. When you came into this world, there was a time, an appointed time, God saved you. How do you know you're elect today? You better read verse 10 real good before you go home. Because if you are, that's what you do. None of us have seen the book. I believe I'm one of God's elect. That is, I believe God saved me. I have no way to prove that except by my life. Nor do you. I've never seen the Lamb's book of life. I've never seen the face of God. I've never seen all of that. It's been shown me in the Bible, and therefore I choose to believe it. And I choose to believe that because God gave me that. If you're one of God's elect, and you're one of those people that God has sovereignly brought out of darkness into his marvelous light, look at verse 11 of Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 and verse 11, he says, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being, now here it is again, being predestinated according to, here it is again, according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his will. So scripture shows us that election is unconditioned. Let me say that again. I hope you're all listening. Being elect, being declared to be elect is not conditioned on God knowing beforehand you would make the right decision. But God would cause you to make the right decision when the time in your life comes because he works all things after the counsel of his will. And when he saves you, I promise you this, he will direct you to his word as our next point we'll get to in just a moment as the way he wants you to live. Keep your finger in 2 Peter, but turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9 where it says he hath saved us. Has he saved you? He has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Notice, he didn't save me because I chose before time to do something. He says he saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us, when? Now think of this. When was grace given to you? Before the world began. God showed favor to you before you were here. 
That was his will. He had a purpose in doing it. You're here for a reason. You're not just a dud in the bigger picture. You have a purpose. You have a reason for being here. God did not aimlessly pick you out to sit in church the rest of your life. But what he does when he stirs you up is to motivate you to keep you from being complacent, to keep you busy spiritually so that when he shows you something, you can begin to do it. Live this way, partake again of the divine nature that God has for you. Would you go to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19? God said, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. And what do the elect do? And let him that nameth the name of Christ do what? Depart from iniquity. What if I told you this? While none of us are perfect, one thing that would identify all of us, if we are his elect, that we strive to keep ourselves clean. We work at keeping ourselves out of trouble, making application of his word and avoiding iniquity. That's just the gear that we're in. The things I used to do, I won't do anymore. Old things have what? Behold, all things have become new, and we're to walk in newness of life. If we're going to walk in newness of life, we've got to find out how to walk. We can't walk in the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ if we don't know who Christ is. He's not just a figure in a storybook. He is our Lord and our Savior. So if we are elect... It simply means you've been born again. You're a new creature in Christ. Old things that passed away. And in your newfound life, you find new struggles. Because it's not easy to separate yourself from the old. But as you keep making application of this word, the corruption of the world will begin to fade and get out of your life. You get cleaned up. Because Jesus said, now you're clean through the word that I've spoken. Now, go back to 2 Peter, and look in verse 10. Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence. If you believe you want them, give diligence to make your calling and election certain. Now, I'm not asking for a show of hands. I just want you to think about it. Are you really one of God's people? Not are you busy, not are you religious, and not are you a member of a church and all of that. Is there evidence in your lifestyle daily that you are one of God's elect? It's evidence by how you live. Notice he said, 2 Peter, he said, Therefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election certain. Live stirred, stirred up. And he said, if you do this, if you live like this, if this is truly in your heart, what will happen? You will not what? What's verse 10 say there at the end of verse 10? You will not what? Fall. You'll be here when it's over. 
when the roll is called up yonder, you'll be there. When this world begins to shake with the judgments of God, I hope you're gone. But you won't be shaken off because God will secure you. Now, that's the elect part of the message. What about the way? The way. Grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God. His divine power is given to us. Everything that pertains to life and godliness, it all comes through knowing. And has given us great and precious promises that you might begin to partake of the nature of God. That the things of God that are freely given to you, you can begin to have it and enjoy it. How about the character of God? Is that possible? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, temperance, faith. Is that all a part of this? Hey, listen to me. This has got to show up. At some point in our walk, we have to start noticing these things in, in each other. Because if you make your calling in the election, sure, you start putting practice or make an application of these things, you'll never fall. He said, remember, listen, if you do these things, you'll never fall. If. Nobody can do it for you. Nobody can live this life for you any more than anybody can get you to heaven apart from your choices in life. Nobody. It's you and the Lord. Now, if he has brought you out and you believe you are his chosen vessel, this is what he says, beginning in verse 5. And for this very reason. Now, the King James Bible says, and beside this. Does your Bible say beside this? It should read, and for this very reason. Now, stop for just one minute. Allow me to take up some more time. If we read that, and for this very reason, what are we talking about? Verses 2, 3, and 4, aren't we? Through the knowledge, through the knowledge, through the knowledge, this is given, you can do this, and great and precious promises, escape of the corruptions in the world. Having that as a promise, he said, for this very reason, there are eight things mentioned here. For this very reason, he said, verse 5, giving all diligence, add to your faith, what? Giving all haste. All eagerness, diligence, add to your faith. It assumes, like in verse 1, it is assumed that if you're elect, obviously, you have obtained like precious faith. The faith that God gives us by which we relate and receive and other things, that very faith is what's leading us forward. I believe I believe. I believe what God said. I believe what the Bible said. How do you know? Well, because if faith says you believe something, there'll be evidence that you believe it by what you do. Faith is an act. Faith is an act of responding to what God said. If God said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, and you call upon the name of the Lord in response to that, God said you'll be saved. Amen. That's what faith does. 
They said, Jesus, why couldn't we cast this demon out of this little boy one time? Remember that? He said, because of the littleness of your faith. Faith is not a mechanical formula that you repeat over people or over finding lost things or getting healed. It's not a formula. It's something that's embedded in a man's heart which compels action that verifies it. You live like it's true. This is our lifestyle. The just shall live by faith. We live as people who take God at his word. We don't have to prove that it's there. We believe, we choose to believe that what God said is true because he said it was true. Never seen him, never heard his voice, never saw him rise from the dead. I have no visual on any of that, but I believe. I believe. And so we live like we believe. The world thinks sometimes we're crazy. They think we're a little eccentric or we're a little bit off-center or we've gotten on a lunatic fringe because we take God at his word. If he said, I'm healed, I'm healed. If he said, I can do all things through Christ, then I can. If he said, no evil shall befall me and no plague come nigh my dwelling, if I believe that, it won't. Now, people who don't believe that say, oh, you're going to be sorry you said that. Say, I wouldn't know about that. They don't believe that. They go to the same church you go to, heard the same Bible, listen to the same preacher. You believe it, they don't. That's what doubt does to man. It leaves him in the dark. And faith brings him out there to where he's convinced that what God said, I can rely on. That if God said he'll do it, then that's good enough for me. Now, when you don't do what everybody else does, Everybody else questions your sanity. You go around confessing that what God said you have, because Jesus said, Jesus said, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive it and you'll have it. You mean to tell me I've got to believe I possess something I can't see? that I believe that something is mine that I can't show anybody? Yes. You believe in the land book of life? Do you really? You believe your name's in it? You live like it? You should because if you believe it, you will. Verse five. For this very reason, add to your faith virtue. Virtue is class. Class. You live a cut above average. Moral excellence. You work hard for who you work for. You give it your best shot for what you say you're going to do. You try hard to do the best job that you can. The same word virtue Back in 1 Peter, chapter 2, common verse. But he said, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him that called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
the word praises is our same word as virtue. The moral excellence of Christ. Like what we've been talking about. You've been brought out of darkness. We're a chosen generation. We are to live as an example of Christ living in us. His virtues. His excellence. His manner. The character that identifies him. That's what you do. Now he said, this faith you have that compels you to trust God, add to it a life of moral excellence. Verse 6, add to that knowledge. Keep looking. Keep learning. Keep pursuing. Let God keep showing you things and get it all refined and make it all the way it ought to be. It's like food. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by what? You feed every day. It's knowledge. Now, start with faith. That's what brings me to God and attaches me to God. My whole relationship is here. Now, add to that the life that would exemplify Jesus, what he was like. Again, the fruits of the Spirit would be a good place to start. Read about his life, how he treated people, how he did things. Let these things characterize your life also. And then he said, add to that knowledge. Be ready always to give an answer. Study to show yourself approved. Or, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. Be a student. Don't just be a church goer and sit in church and never read or never study or seek or have no interest in the Bible. But find out God is trying to show you something. Personally invite you to read something. And, and as you pursue that, he wants to show you things and do things. Notice verse 6. And add to knowledge... Temperance, we could use a lot of this. Everybody could, because temperance is self-control. Temperance is what keeps you from throwing a fit. So I said, well, I don't throw fits. Well, okay, you're an exception. Temperance is the restraint that you place on yourself to do something that God would not approve of. Maybe it's with your eyes and looking at things. Maybe it's reading the wrong stuff. Maybe it's talking to the wrong people about the wrong things. There's a lot of things. But temperance, restrain yourself, hold yourself. is long-suffering. Temperance is a word that means one who masters and controls his desires, whatever it might be. Temperance. And then he said in verse 6, and add to your temperance, patience. Patience is one of the big words in the Bible that's the very first cousin to faith. The Bible talks about us as those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. In Matthew 24, he said, he that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. Our word endure and our word patience, same thing. You got to hold fast. 
things aren't always going to look good. I don't care how rosy and how wonderful the Word of God comes in a quiet meeting on a Sunday morning. It doesn't mean that when you go out there and face the world, the devil's going to leave you alone. He's not. He would love nothing more than to throw you off course, to discourage you, make you think you can. It's too far too hot, too cold, too young, too old, too fast, too slow. Something is always the reason why you can't. But when faith says, I will because God says I can, I receive that, it's undergirded, and this word patience means to hold up under. The reason faith doesn't fail with some people is because they endure. They're steadfast, or they're immovable. They're determined that what they put their hands to and what they started out doing, they're going to continue to do. These are those who realize that in your patience, you possess your souls. Jesus said in the context of the last days to us, he said, in your patience, you possess your souls. The will to give up, the desire to give up, the temptation to give up, we've all experienced it. If somebody had told me 50 years ago, I haven't been saved 50 years, but if somebody had told me 50 years ago that I should press in and do this, I would have thought there's no way I can do that. My own personal estimate of myself is I cannot. I'm not even sure I'd want to even try. But after a while of being saved, feeding on milky things and learning how to chew a little bit along the way, I begin to realize that God is bigger than my life. And God is bigger than your life. And God is bigger than your problems and my problems, bigger than all of our problems put together. That there is nothing out of his range. There's nothing about us that God cannot fix and solve. There's nothing about us that he cannot keep safe. Nothing. We just have to be willing from our side. Not only to start, but to remain. And that's what patience, that's what endurance does. This is how you possess your soul. It's a big word in the Bible. And he said, going on, he said, and add to your patience, godliness. Godliness. The Greek word for godliness, Eusebia, has to do with a right and true and personal relationship with God, out of which comes God-like, God-inspired ways. You desire that, you're willing to do that, God has control, and he becomes the expression of your life because that's what godliness does. A godly man would be a devout man. A godly man would be one who shows piety towards God. In Barnes's notes, he calls it well-directed reverence. There's something about us that doesn't cater to the trash in this world and the ignorant and dumb jokes that people tell and the unnecessary vulgar humor that people like to laugh at. 
there's something about that nature, that divine nature inside of you that recoils at that. God won't prevent you from listening. He won't prevent you from going, doing, and acting. But he'll certainly tell you not to do that. And he has a way of getting your attention. But a godly man, if you let me show you 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1, he said this second epistle, I now write unto you in which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. And he'll go on and describe like down in verse 11, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. The last days, the end time, the judgments of God that are coming, this earth and all that, you're seeing some of it already out in the world in the last week. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what kind of person ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness. We should stand out as godly people because of the decisions that we make to let God have his way. Be like what John the Baptist said, he shall increase, I must, more of him, less of me, all of him, none of me. And what comes out of that kind of a lifestyle, if it truly has taken place, is a person you all acknowledge. I mean, you know people that is a very reverent person. I mean, they're not strange or weird. They're just, they have a heart for God. There's just things in their life that they don't allow. There are things in their life they pursue. For some people, there's just a few things that truly satisfy, and it all has to be about God. Go back to Second Peter chapter 1. Because he said another thing here is brotherly kindness, verse 7. And add to your godliness brotherly kindness. The word Philadelphia from which this comes has to do with love of brethren. That's a big problem. I doubt if any of us have very long been in any church, any kind of a Christian gathering. If you stayed there long enough, that you didn't realize that some people don't like each other. Now they will tell you they're all, oh, I don't know, you know, they'll do that. But when it comes right down to certain conversations with certain people in their circle, they don't like certain people. And you have to ask yourself, who does God love the most, you or that person? Who does God love the most? Well, I don't think he loves one more than the other one. Then who are you not to love who he loves? Well, First John has so much about love in it, but in this case, it's brotherly love. It's our compassion. It's why we help each other when things need to be helped. It's why you're thoughtful towards each other. It's why you minister sometimes with your time or your talents to make somebody's life a little better than it was, trying to relieve them of difficulty. Or a mother with a lot of kids and all that, you, you take a dinner to her maybe because I, I know she's going through a hard time. It's just what brotherly love is. Doesn't always have to be people you know well. I remember 
just this past week, there's a certain kind of dish that my wife makes. It's a dessert. It's probably kind of crummy to some of you, but I like it. So I come in, eat dinner the next night, get ready to get into my crummy dessert, and it's gone. I say, uh, Bonnie. Yes, you know how that, you know how. I said, Bonnie. I said, where's, where's my crummy dessert? I gave it to the new preacher down the road. How about the old preacher down the road? <laughs> and then she told me, she was walking up the road there, met this lady, the new preacher on the end of the road down there, and had a bunch of kids, and they were busy, and maybe this and that, and she kind of felt she'd like to help relieve her a little bit, and so she took her probably what I was going to have for dinner and, and my crummy cake. And <laughs> Christians do that. Now, it's my turn to say, praise the Lord. That's good. <laughs> That's a good thing, honey. Thank you. Because the next time you make it, I'm going to hide it. <laughs> no. I've seen a lot of brotherly kindness in our church. I've seen a lot of times we could use a lot more brotherly kindness. It's not easy because we all grew up drawing lines. All of us did. We've learned there's certain personalities we don't like and there's certain ways or certain areas that people live in. We just don't want them around us. But that's not Christ. And all you're studying and all you're learning and all your glorious advancing spiritually you better make sure this one is a part of it. Now, the next one says, finally, in verse 7, and add your brotherly kindness, add to Philadelphia agapeo, or God's kind of love, divine love, the purest form of love there is. But that, too, causes us to respond to people. Remember the verse that said, Whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, First John 3, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him. How does the love of God dwell in that person? And that's our higher form of love. Love of God in God's people makes God's people loving. We quit talking about the government. We quit talking about shooting this one and bombing that one. There's not much loving about that kind of talk. You can listen to political talk shows if you want to, and you can listen to all the Rush Limbaugh's, and all, you can listen to all of them you want to, but I'll guarantee you at the end of the program, you didn't get much there that made you a more loving person. I don't know the man, never met him. All I know is that God has geared me in a little different direction than he's geared him. And I don't need to be brought to the place where I become cynical, because I've had that problem my whole life. I don't need to be cynical and critical and start pointing my finger and I'll tell you one thing. I don't need that because there's nothing about that that examples the Christ that I read of in Scripture. And as we read about Jesus, he said, the love wherewith I have loved you, love your brothers. And no greater love has this than a man lay down his life for his brother. And you're my brethren if you do my commandments. And by this, in John 13, 
And by this shall all men know that you truly are, you truly are God's elect, is that you love each other. Overlook all problems, and instead of mouthing things out, you suppress it and you hide it because love covers a multitude of things you're going to have to repent of if you say that. And oh, as I told you last week, I shouldn't have brought it up last two or three weeks. Traffic lights. I mean, I know when I say this, I'm going to have to do it again tomorrow, but I'll win tomorrow. That's right. Amen. I will. One day I'll come and they'll, you know, somebody stop here like this. And nobody coming. I mean, you can go out here and you can walk out in the street and walk up to the other corner and walk back and say, ma'am, ain't nobody coming. You can go ahead and turn right. Go ahead. And you're sitting back there thinking like that. Now, she wasn't doing that. I'm making her like that in my figment of my imagination. I say, come on, lady. A little louder than that. Come on, woman, turn. Did I hear it again? Shut up. Shut your mouth, Ham. Jesus wouldn't do that. Then why do we allow ourselves to do that? See, let me say it again, then we'll close with this. We must stir up each other. We need to have such a relationship with each other that we stir up each other to gear us into living the way we're being taught. Because in closing this morning, the elect... The way and the reward, the reward back in Second Peter is simply, if you do these things, verse 10, if you do these things, what? You'll never fall. Listen to this. Verse 11 from another translation. For thus you will be given a triumphant admission into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter said to an inheritance incorruptible and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. That's the reward for the willingness to live the life, toe the line and be responsible towards God. All we have to do now is live it. Amen. Amen. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus. I ask you to open our eyes as well as our hearts this morning to recognize our need is greater than what we have recognized before. Our need to learn and to grow and to walk, to subdue our flesh, to seek first your kingdom. So much of that, Lord, is simply words in a sermon and it's not our lifestyle and we ask in the name of Jesus you would deliver us from complacency or from indifference or self-satisfaction and help us to realize that every day of our lives is a new day to walk in this new way. Bless this word to the hearts of those who want it, who desire it. In Jesus' name, amen.